Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. We're going to be totally upfront with you. We took a big risk going independent. To make this work, we need your support to beat the corporate media. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they are ripping this country apart. They are making millions of dollars doing it. To help support our mission of making all of us hate each other less, hate the corrupt ruling class more, support the show. Become a Breaking Points Premium member today where you get to watch and listen to the entire show ad-free and uncut an hour early before everyone else. You get to hear our reactions to each other's monologues. You get to participate in weekly Ask Me Anythings. And you don't need to hear our annoying voices pitching you like I am right now. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com, become a premium member today, which is available in the show notes. Enjoy the show, guys. All right, guys, we have achieved a major milestone. It has officially been six months since the launch of Breaking Points and the revealing of Sagar's beautiful desk and our lovely fake brick wall (laughs) and the bookshelves. I actually really like these bookshelves. I love these bookshelves. I would get these bookshelves for myself. You found them. They're pretty fancy. So anyway, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you um, a little bit about the milestones you've helped us achieve and also just to say thank you because it is very easy for me to think back to when we were stepping out on our own and how scared we were and nervous because we had no idea idea if it was really going to work out. And you guys have been there for us in a way that we really literally never could have imagined. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We never in a million years thought that it would work out like this. And just to give you guys insight into how it's worked out, we've had 100 million views on YouTube since we launched, which truly, I I can't even wrap my head around I literally can't wrap my head around that. We have never (laughs) dropped below since launch day, number five on the Spotify politics chart for podcasts. Often we are at number one, beating the New York Times, Ben Shapiro, um, all of those. NPR. NPR. I mean, sometimes I look at the chart and I can't even believe it because it's us and then corporate media, corporate media, corporate media, and like Ben Shapiro. Yeah. And it's like, Oh my God! I mean, how he did spends this a lot of money on marketing too. He spends a lot of money on marketing, um, and, and also he's been around, he's been around for like fifteen years. Yeah. It's like we've been here for just six months. Six hundred and fifty-six thousand subscribers on our channel, and 
it's just amazing to see those benchmarks, what they really reflect is how well and how amazing the show has been received by so many of you who helped us get here. We could not have built this set without your support. We fully upgraded our studio here, 4K cameras. We have new audio equipment here so that more people can actually join us here on the set. This is the only like, 4K camera studio. Yes, that's what they tell us. DC, at least right. that's what the lens What they tell us is that we are <laughs> yeah, one of the most advanced actually studios in the entire city. We have plans um, to, in order to bring some more people on, expand the coverage, make it so that we can cover the midterms exactly the way that should be covered that you know we'll have and tell people the stories that are actually not being there like the amount that we are able to invest and to bring you guys as much as we possibly can you have no idea how much it means but also we're really just getting started so yeah. look if you can support us help us get more YouTube subscribers hit the subscribe button there I would love to hit 1 million by the end of the year yeah. I think it took us 20 months when we were at the hill yeah. in order to hit 1 million so if we could do it in under a year we were that would be algorithm amazing method. Yeah, we yeah. <laughs> had a little bit of a better algorithm and more better monetization, but look, yeah. at least we own it. It is 100% ours, and in many ways, it's 100% yours. Um, what else? Subscribe, rate, whatever on the podcast. If you can help us with the premium uh, membership, the link is in the description. Really what it is is that, and we really are meaning this, we are using the money in order to invest into the business, as you can see all around us. We have, how many people do we have on uh, staff? We've got, I think, seven, eight? Um, yeah. Know, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Math is hard. Something like uh, that. seven or eight. Uh, just <laughs> peek behind the curtain, opening the kimono. Like we have eight people on the payroll producing this show every single day to the highest standards that we can muster. The graphics, um, a producer, in order to pull the stuff and look out for stories and to help us book. We have multiple people in the control room. I mean, I remember at the beginning of the show, um, they were complaining about the audio, and we were like, okay, we have to hire an audio person, yeah. and have an audio person in the studio every. Every single day, and we've even upgraded that the the board on which the entire uh, show is run. I know this is mundane stuff, but this is what it really means to run a high end video production business here in Washington. We just want you guys to know yeah. that we're continuing to try to think of ways not only to produce to improve the production quality, but also to continue to add value uh, on the content That's right. side. And so, you know, the, the partnership with the Daily Poster is a good preview That's of the wonderful. sorts of things that we're thinking about. People yep. who we really trust, who can bring, you know, exclusive content to you guys that you're not going to see mainstream anywhere else. That's really the sort of things that we're thinking through right now to make sure that, you know, day to day, but also as we head into the midterm elections, that our content is second to none. Yep. That you guys are really getting the best picture you possibly can of what's going on in our politics and in our country writ large. So that's what we're thinking about. That's what we're grateful for this holiday season is you guys, we get asked all the time, what, why do we continue to, you know, have any yeah. optimism or over the country? And it really is you all because something that is so unique about this show is we really genuinely have listeners and viewers from every corner of the political spectrum. Oh, yeah. Truly. Were you looking at some of those people Spotify wrapped who tagged us? So no. I went through all my Instagram mentions and all the people in their Spotify wrapped, it would be like breaking points and then like Chapo Trap House. Breaking points, 
Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Breaking points, Tim Dillon. Breaking points, some like Amy Schumer or something. Like. You and can, I was like, you people are all, all over, over the, the map. Yeah. And you can see it too on YouTube. They'll tell yeah. you like oh, what yeah. other channels people are watching other than yours. And it's like, it's all, it's also, it's like Rogan. Right. It's Jimmy Dore. Ben Shapiro. It's Ben Shapiro. It's, yeah. I mean, it really Kyle is. Kyle Kalinske. Yeah. It's Kyle, totally nuts. It's, and also sadly still, it's yeah. just The Hill. Which oh, is The Hill. Cringe. I it's do. Okay. Ryan's a good yeah. guy. Ryan's great. Yeah, we Emily's great. Right. Uh, no, we love no ill will. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah, it's yeah. all good. But anyway, so yeah. it, it truly is across the spectrum. We get messages all the time from people who are like, this is my political persuasion. We're like, and you like us? Yeah, we're like, okay. I'm like, okay, sure. Cool. Whatever. <laughs> the fact that that's possible in right. America, I think is something no one would have believed. Do you remember the uh, evangelical pastor who wrote in and asked us to not curse during the show? And I was like, you watch the show? Really? <laughs> Another guy who's like, hey, I'm Mormon, and you know, I have nine kids or whatever in my house, and he's like, please don't curse because I put you on the big screen. I was like, wow, okay. I, mean, I never would have imagined somebody like that watching yeah, the show. Yeah. But hey, it's all good. Yeah, we, lo- yeah. we love that. Um, yeah. We really take pride in that because we know that we're going to say things, if that's your ideological persuasion it's not like ours, then we know we're going to say things that are probably going to irritate you and you stick with it anyway. So to me, that is a really good and healthy thing um, for, you know, a the community of breaking points, but also for the country at large. If we could have more of that, things might be a little better out there. 100%. Thank you guys so much. It means the world. Love you guys. We'll see you soon. Joining us now for our weekly partnership with The Daily Poster, we have a reporter for that outlet, Walker Bragman, who is out with a great news story. Great to have you, Walker. Good to see you, man. Thanks for, have, thanks for having fun. me on. Yeah, our pleasure. Let's go ahead and throw the tear sheet up on the screen here. Um, Quote is, it's time to get back to the office. Facing a primary challenger and courting real estate interest, New York Governor Kathy Hochul is pushing to end remote work. Just break down for us what you found here. So uh, interim Governor Hochul has been pushing for the for really since since the start of the month uh, or last month to end remote work in in New York. Now, she's not laid out any concrete actions that she's going to take, but she is encouraging employers to bring people back. Now, what's interesting is that that push uh, was happening simultaneously with a, a surge in COVID cases. And I mean, that that to me stood out like that doesn't make sense. Why are we why are we encouraged? Why are we why are we not encouraging remote work at a time when, you know, there's still a very real risk now? Admittedly, a lot of people in New York City are vaccinated, um, but that does not necessarily mean that the virus can't spread or that there aren't people who are vulnerable. And I tend to be of the mind that public policy should factor in the most vulnerable. And this pandemic will not be over until it's over for, you know, those people. And Walker, one of the things you're pointing to here is that the real estate industry in particular is pressuring Kathy Hochul very hard. What did you find in terms of the financial connections here behind what she's pushing? So Hochul has, has long been supported by commercial real estate interests. But what's, what's interesting here is that she's facing a primary challenge um, from New York's Attorney General, Letitia James. And James got a lot of real estate money too, during her during her run. So the industry, I guess, is sort of up for grabs or maybe up for grabs. Uh, and so this this position does track with an industry goal of getting everybody back into offices because the pandemic has seen a massive decline in the amount of office space that 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 companies need. So 
that hurts that hurts uh, property values, and and uh, it is in their interest to get people back to to normal or the pre-pandemic normal. Yeah, that was um, the part that was really revealing to me because I actually hadn't thought through the fact that anyone who has real estate interests, commercial real estate interests, are very much interested in getting people back in the office because otherwise there just isn't as much demand for your properties and you're not going to be able to command as high prices. So a lot of, you've seen a lot of sort of CNBC types making this push too, making the case that, oh, people really need to be back in, productivity is better. But we didn't actually find during the pandemic when people, when white collar workers were working from home, that they were any less productive. So what is the real case? Even once, I mean, to me, even once we are beyond the pandemic, if we ever, you know, get to that point, I think people have enjoyed in some respects having the flexibility to work from home or move out of New York into other cities um, and have more flexibility within their lives. Look, I think it was a game changer, honestly, in, in this and how work is going to be done. And I, I think we're sort of pushing against the, you know, the tide and it's, it's somewhat futile. Um, that said, look, I, I do think that this all sort of stems from the same place, that there is this mentality in this country that business interests are more important than human lives. And we have seen that on display throughout the pandemic, not just, not just from employers who want their employees back, who are calling their employees back or from commercial real estate interests who are, who are, uh, who are funding or lobbying politicians or, or uh, to, to bring to you know push these back to work policies, but from the federal government too. I mean, we our refusal to adopt an elimination strategy has led to hundreds of thousands of American deaths and and these waves, these continued ongoing waves of COVID that we that we keep seeming to have. Um, and so I, I mean, it's it's a it's a really big problem. I think it's a problem with our with our culture. You know, it's interesting too, Walker, because she uh, brought back uh, what is it? She canceled elective surgeries in response yep. to the Omicron variant. But as you're pointing to, at the same time, is saying we have to get every New Yorker back to work. It's like you have to pick one, right? Well, this <laughs> is where of, people, it, right. yeah, and this is where people lose trust, <laughs> right? Because they see that these two things don't go together. So then other statements that you make that may actually right. be true about, say, like, hey, you should go get a vaccine. They're gonna be like, well, it undermines your trust that. when you actually are providing accurate public health information. You, you know, what's interesting to me is that the um, the, the push to to or the, the order that allows hospitals to to cancel that allows the state to cancel uh, elective surgeries. I mean. That's focused on maintaining hospital capacity. We're still dealing in public policy that has acceptable losses. Uh, that's, that's the basis of the policy, right? If you're, if you're concerned about keeping hospital space open, it's saying we're not really going to contain the spread. We're just going to mitigate the damage. And I think that is an unacceptable public policy outlook for, for anywhere. I mean, New York happens to be where I live. So, so it's really, it's frustrating for me on that level, but but honestly, anywhere that, that that is the policy is really disappointing and disheartening. I mean, we have a, a study back in May suggested that 900,000 Americans had died by, you know, the true count because official numbers are, are undercounted. Every epidemiologist I've spoken to has said the official numbers, you know, they, they provide a baseline, but they're, they're more than more than likely undercounted. So I, I think it's, I think it's a real, I think it's a real, uh, disappointing thing to see from the new governor who came in promising 
that she would be different from her predecessor, you know, open and, and honest and whatnot. And we're seeing, we're seeing, uh, we're not seeing that play out. Well, I think we probably have a, a slightly different view about, you know, what the rea- what the realistic position is in terms of COVID policies. But where we, I 100% agree with you, is that real estate interests should not be driving or any other profit motive, whether it's from the healthcare industry or from real estate interests, should be driving the decisions that are being made. They should truly be weighed based on public health and also quality of life, you know, even after the pandemic is over. If people were just as productive working remotely and they want to move somewhere else, they want to have that different lifestyle, they should be entitled to it. And um, it shouldn't be real estate interest or the boss class who are really determining what that future of work looks like going forward. 100%. Walker, thank you for the great... Go ahead. I was just going to say, at the very least, we should be encouraging remote work. Because that yeah. that is something that can, Simple. can tangibly affect spread, and and you know look something like eighty percent of office jobs in New York City are are remote capable. Yeah. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. Great it's, point. Absolutely. Thank you, Walker, so thanks, for great thank report. Thank you for having me on. Our no pleasure. Problem. Glad to thank have you. Thank you very much. And thank you guys for watching. Have a great day, and we'll have more for you later. So Andrew Yang joined YouTuber David Pakman. Actually, pretty interesting interview all the way around that I recommend you guys check out in its entirety. It's about 25 minutes long. Do it on double speed. It takes you even less than that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were some of his comments in particular that caught a lot of people's attention on Twitter. Of course, Andrew is going forward with the forward party. He's sort of left the Democratic Party, and his focus primarily is on election reforms. So ranked choice voting and making sure that, you know, people don't just have to pick between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is kind of the focus of what he's up to. So Pacman asked him effectively, well, what would your coalition be? Who are you looking to appeal to, and who are you willing to work with on this project? Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. To make it really specific, if people on the right say the Republican Party is too centrist, I'm an extreme white supremacist or something like that. But I think we need to get, you know, we need single transferable vote or whatever and campaign. You, 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 you still welcome that because you're on the same page on that one issue. Yeah, if they're going to help us transition to a more effective democracy, um, like, you know, I don't need to know what their stance is on things that I disagree with. People have a sense of where I'm coming from. Okay. Uh, but, but right now, I believe that there is an existential threat to the country um, as a result of the greatest design flaw in the history of the world. Uh, mm. That is, and if if you will help us resolve that design flaw, then we can have a discussion about anything else under the sun. At a time when the democracy actually will stand the test of time. Very obviously controversial answer. Very provocative on Twitter. Very provocative answer. And he goes on to explain, like, listen, you know, he obviously thinks these people are abhorrent and he thinks they will, he has confidence that they will lose in the marketplace of ideas. So if they're partnering up for something like ranked choice voting and open primary, something that would open the way to multi-party democracy, they're effectively signing their own political irrelevance because they're going to be relegated to some like, you know, extremist fringe party that's going to garner very little electoral support. But ultimately, I mean, there's kind of this bigger, and I really, the interview was very interesting. Pacman asked him a bunch of interesting questions that I think you guys will find um, insightful as well about tech censorship and all sorts of things. But, you know, it gets to this bigger instinct in recent American politics where rather than expecting the voters to judge the politicians, the politicians are being asked to, like, 
judge the voters yes. yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good and like cleanse their coalitions of anyone who might be outside. Look, if you're an extreme white supremacist, white nationalist, like that's obviously not an edge case. But also there's so much shaming and calling if you don't use the right language, if you're not there on every single issue, then you're also supposed to be pushed out of the circle. And it's quite antithetical to having any sort of solidarity and having a coalition to actually get things done. Yeah, look, I may, I'm sure we'll get roasted for it too, but that's how politics works. He's like, look, on this personal design question, anybody who wants to work with me, I'll take their vote. After that, in this, you know, I mean, frankly, in the system that Yang is advocating for, uh, these people would actually have less power than they would in a partisan That's exactly democracy. That's right. <laughs> so, right, because now they have influence it within the party. Yeah, if you have a small group, which is really dedicated, I've talked a lot here about Nassim Taleb's tyranny of the minority and uh, the uh, dictatorship of the small minority, and then the idea that they could then vote in a very partisan primary, setting the rules and the preferences for the entire population. I mean, under the rules that Yang is proposing, that actually would be neutered, and it would make it so that we would have a less extreme amount of politics in our actual democratic design. So if you do care about silencing or at least, you know, trying to mollify or stop the influence of people who have abhorrent views, this would probably be the best way in order to get that done. But of course, nobody thinks about it from an actual policy and practical point of view. And Yang, to his credit, what I really like about this current iteration of Andrew Yang is after losing the you know the New York primary, he seems to be returning to what made him him in the first place. And I think that having that honesty, having and really the willingness to just have a conversation with anybody under the sun, which I think is very important, um, he is being pressed and asked questions which you would never hear from the corporate media, and then answering them, I think truthfully, to his actual stated aims. So I very much welcome you know this current iteration, and I think it was very brave of him to say so, despite the fact that he's going to get attacked for it. I think it's exactly the right attitude that you have to have if you're being really serious about what you want to get done. Yeah, and having them as like they're voting for this in some ballot initiative or whatever is different than having people with, you know, abhorrent views who are helping to drive the direction of whatever you're doing, et cetera. Like that's obviously a very different scenario. There's also something very interesting that happens when Pacman asks him this question, which is that you actually see Andrew sit for a second and think Mm -hmm. before responding, which is like, It's amazing how unusual it is for people to actually be sort of grappling with something in real time and not just spew out whatever talking points or cover story they think you ultimately want to hear. Now, as you know, for me, the jury is a little bit more still out on the new project, on whether it's going to be effective. Um, I also think that he really needs to uh, get, you know, any sort of big money influence out of and say he's not going to take large-scale corporation, you know, corporate money or large-scale donations, because I do think that those things ultimately could influence the direction in a nefarious way. I'm much more concerned about that sort of influence ultimately. So again, I have questions about the project in particular, but I did think this exchange was interesting, and it is the sort of thing that I'm sure he knew in that moment that, like, this is not going to sound good and people are going to cut it and they're going to, you know, they're going to hate it and it's going to turn off a certain percentage of the population. But he comes with what he believes the the correct and the honest answer is here. So pretty interesting exchange. Very interesting. All All right, guys. Enjoy your day. We'll have more for you later. All right, guys, we've got a new potential Rachel Dolezal or Elizabeth Warren (laughs) type situation on our hands. This one out of our friendly neighbors to the north, uh, a Canadian woman who had risen to a a top level position um, within the government 
has been outed as a fraud. She's been claiming indigenous heritage for years. Let's go ahead and throw this New York Post tear sheet up on the screen. Canada's indigenous health expert, Carrie Barassa, loses job when her ancestry claims prove false. Here's the opening bit here. A Canadian medical researcher who rose to become the nation's top voice on indigenous health has been ousted from her government job and her university professorship after suspicious colleagues investigated her increasingly fanciful claims of Native American heritage and learned she was a fraud. (laughs) She was suspended on November 1st, five days after the state-owned Canadian Broadcasting Corporation published a lengthy expose on her background. I also read the expose because this is one of these stories that I'm just like— how do you, how, why, why and how, yeah. and how do you think you're going to get away with this? Let's go ahead and throw um, that investigation up on the screen. And effectively, what happened here, as best as we can figure out, is she originally claimed to be part of the Métis yes. Nation. And even convinced her sister that they had this ancestry. She brought in someone who was an expert who who gave them some sort of lineage that persuaded the sister, at least for a time, that they did have this indigenous ancestry. But when Kali started to get suspicious is when the sister decided, like, I did my own research and I don't think I can claim this anymore, that this does not seem like it is a true reflection of, you know, where our people ultimately came from. And then you couple with that with the fact that on top of the initial claims about the Métis ancestry, she started to add on other tribal lineages yes. that she was affiliated with. So let's take a look at, this was a TEDx talk that raised a lot of out- eyebrows at the time where she's claiming a, a lot of different ancestries that it turns out she was not connected to at all. Let's take a look at that. I'm Bear Clan. I'm Anishinaabe Métis from Treaty 4 Territory, and I want to acknowledge the territory that I'm in, Treaty 6 territory, um, home to the Cree peoples and uh, uh, homeland of the Métis Nation. I also want to acknowledge my ancestors who are clearly here with me. Uh, So it turns out that her people are actually like Russian (laughs) and Eastern European farmer immigrants. Which is fine. Totally fine. Yeah. Also that This is the other part that, to me, was actually the most gross. She also invented this whole childhood of trauma um, that, look, I don't know if she suffered some trauma or another in her life or not, but what she said is totally inconsistent with who her parents actually are. Apparently, they were successful, well-known, middle-class business owners. She had a, a stable upbringing, at least from the outside, as far as anyone could tell, totally opposite the childhood of trauma that she described as rife with violence and addiction and sexual assault and and poverty and all of these things. Some of them, I mean, the poverty part is provably false. The ancestry also now provably false. But I just, I just really don't understand. Like, I mean, it seems like she also started leaning more into the traditional dress, which is also part of why her colleagues were like, what are you doing here? And they found it particularly gross, too, that she invented this whole childhood of trauma, which kind of plays into these negative stereotypes of that community. Like, every indigenous person is, like, you know, a violent drunk or something like that. And so it's quite incredible. Ultimately, I mean, this lady, she's just a con artist. That's what it really looks like. She said that her name was Morning Star Bear. Like, that's a veggie burger. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just real life. Okay. Look, I, I'm shocked. I, I don't know. 
this is a deep social pathology. This is not the first time this has happened. Dolezal was one. Here in D.C., where I went to school, GW, there was some professor. Oh, really? Yeah, who uh, proclaimed to be, same thing, you know, professor of X studies, long claim of history, totally false. She was just white. I, I don't get it. It's okay to be Russian, Czech, or Polish. You know, there's some oppression that happened in those communities, especially if you're Czech, Russian, or whatever that came over here in 1912, 1913. You could talk about the turmoil of the czar or whatever. Be proud of where you're from. There's nothing wrong with being from there. I, I really don't know. I mean, the fact that her parents were business owners and she had a middle-class childhood shows that one of the best ways you can get ahead in current culture is to claim trauma and to claim some sort of special status. And I'm not minimizing people's actual trauma, but you know, Harper's Magazine just came out with a big cover edition uh, yesterday, I think, called Against Trauma. And it was exactly around how the social pathologizing of the idea of trauma entering everybody's life has created all this like weird speak about the way people talk about screwed up childhoods or whatever. And I'm not minimizing it once again, but it also claims a way to have social status. And when you have social status, then you have freaks and narcissists like this who glom onto it and use it and exploit it all the way to the very top of the uh, of the value chain. And I mean, it's, it's repulsive how far she actually got with this. Well, she got to actually have the benefit of, yeah, you without know, any of the, the privilege that comes with right. her class status and not yeah. having that trauma. Right. Again, I don't know every in and out of her right. childhood and no one does to say that like there's no trauma, but certainly the story she what was she telling- What she claimed is BS. Is, right. What she claimed is totally BS, yeah. right? <laughs> so she gets to have the benefit of that upbringing and then gets to use this feigned identity to carve out a sort of, you know, a brand for right. herself, yeah. <laughs> which is, it, it really is, it really is something. And I have to say, too, I mean, listen, I, I really, you know, buy into the notion that race is, there isn't this, like, hard genetic, these lines, race is social construct and all of that. So I can theoretically imagine a person who doesn't have, like, technical lineage in a certain community but authentically is culturally part of that community sure. like i can i can imagine that right. set of circumstances that is clearly not what was yeah that's not what was happening <laughs> that is not right. what was going on in fact i would say rachel dolajal um without you know recalling every detail and specifics of her particular case like i would say she had more of an authentic claim to she had really made efforts to you know mm. be part of the community and sort of live that experience all of those things like, I can imagine a theoretical set of circumstances where you would feel a part of a culture that you didn't technically descend from. This ain't it. This yeah. person is just a con artist. Yeah, no. This bottom is, line. It's psycho. And it just goes to show you what gets reward in our society. It's this stuff, which you can get away with this stuff for a long time. I mean, look, credit to the news. I guess Canada's news is not as uh, woke as our news, so credit to them. There's no way they would have done this here in the U.S. So I'm I glad know, that— Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren did ultimately—she kind of well, exposed herself. Well, I was going to say, she played herself. <laughs> There's no way the New York Times and all them would actually dug into Charlemagne was happy to ask her about it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Man, I will always give credit to that guy for asking. I mean, here's what I would say. Like, still the best that if you if you had to pick an identity in America and presumably in Canada, mm -hmm. the thing that you would want is to be a rich person. Yeah. Period, end of right. Story, yeah. right. I mean, that's the best thing. So she got to have the class status, and then because well, she was probably profiting off of this too. That's the other thing in terms of, or at least very socially, and her job and all that relied on this. So you know. Yeah, her right. job, her chosen field. This was very advantageous. Right. 100%.
Anyway. This, these people are psycho. It's hard to understand. How do you not yeah. think you're going to get caught? And her whole fan, and by the way, her whole family, they wouldn't say much on the record, but they said enough to be like, this is bullshit. <laughs> we want nothing to do with it, including the sister and the parents. Yeah. Well, so. you know, I, I hope somebody who's actually, what do they call them in Canada? It's not native. It's uh, First, First Nations Nation. or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So I hope somebody who's actually First Nation um, gets this post. There actually are a lot of problems oh. for First Nation and Native people. Also here Massive discrimination, in the United States. poverty, right. you know. The way these people have been treated, terrible. Um, they have some great traditions and more. I actually read a book recently about uh, people, Native communities in Alaska, who have some overlap and share with people in Canada as well about Eskimo. I forget what it is. I think it's called My Life with the Eskimos about a Norwegian. Norwegian-American explorer who went to Upper Canada in the 1900s. Fascinating stuff, okay? Like, real, you could, like, you know, my parents are from India. I have a reverence for those type of cultures, their traditions, um, and more. And so to have people appropriate that, like, literally, this is one of those, you know, real cases where this is happening, it's yes. disgusting. Yes. So, yeah, I don't know what to say. Agreed. All right. All right, guys. Enjoy your day. We'll have more for you later. Some really interesting new data, frankly troubling data, uh, from apartmentguide.com. They put out their monthly rent report and some pretty stunning numbers about just how much rents have spiked across the country. Let's go ahead and throw this map up to start with. So what you see here is the increase in rent of one-bedroom apartments in states across the country. Every single state has seen an increase. And you can see where some of the top states are. Um, they're kind of scattered all over, yeah, but as Oklahoma. we yeah, as we dig into the data, you see Louisiana, you see Florida, you see Oregon. Um, as we dig into the data, you'll see some of the cities that have had the highest spikes. A lot of them are in warm weather places, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Um, a lot of them also in places, cities that are relatively small, so 300,000 people or less. Right. But just to give you the top line numbers, so overall, one bedrooms year over year price has increased close to 20%, 19.8% in one year. Wow. Two bedrooms the picture is not much better. Price has increased year over year by 17.3%. Just to give you a little bit more data, here are the uh, top 10 cities in terms of amount of increase. Those are the numbers at the top. You see Gilbert, Arizona, Long Beach, California, Riverside, California, Orlando, Florida. Again, a lot of places that are warm. Mm-hmm. Birmingham, Alabama, St. Petersburg, Florida, Huntington Beach, California, Boise, Idaho. That's one I'd been hearing about. Scottsdale, Arizona, and Irvine, California. And finally, for the two-bedroom, biggest increase, um, you see places like, again, Orlando, uh, Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida, Jacksonville, Arlington, Texas, Tucson, Arizona, Garland, Texas, Reno, Nevada, Fort Wayne, Indiana, random, New York, Hmm. New York, Hmm. different than what you might have heard on the right, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. So a couple things that I took note of here. First of all, you see the uh, movement to warm weather places and driving up rent prices. You see, obviously, you know, the pandemic abating and um, rent prices skyrocketing now that people can actually potentially have a job and pay. Yeah. And it does defy some of the narratives out there. I mean, a lot of the places that saw huge rent increases were actually in California, where the narrative has been, oh, California's over, oh, New York's over, and everybody's going to Texas. At least from this rent price data, um, that doesn't necessarily necessarily reflect that. And then the, the most important piece here is, like, 
you know, when you see rent prices going up this much, this is a massive hit on people's wallet. It makes it so hard for them to be able to afford the other necessities of life in addition to just housing. I mean, housing price goes up by 20%, and then your food cost goes up by, like, what, 40%? I mean, that's a total disaster. Those are the absolute basics. In a single year, you're getting nuked. Um, And for a lot of people who are on month or year year over year leases, if you re-signed um, and are up for re-signing in 2021, you probably did see a significant increase. I have a lot of friends who this happened to, who took advantage of COVID deals and now are, you know, are looming and seeing like, oh, you know, are we going to be able to re-sign this apartment or not? It's really becoming a problem. And they really point to this fact. Rent inflation is here until 2023. While the pandemic saw a drastic decrease in rent, the trend quickly reversed as both renters, new and old, returned to cities. As the report shows, year-over-year rent price up by double-digit nationwide, a trend that is likely to continue. And the other thing that they point, oh, highest increase in more than 30 years. But what they really, this captures, is internal migration within states and all over the country. That's the totally nuts part. So even within California, people said, okay, I'm going to the hotter parts of California. I'm going to the nicer parts because I'm working from home or I have the ability. That creates this competition over scarce resources, which drives the price up. Boise, Idaho, from what I heard, was the same thing. Yeah. Californians who wanted to pay lower taxes, still be on the West Coast time zone, be only like an hour-long flight or whatever away from San Francisco. Boom, they're moving to Boise. Same with Arizona. Scottsdale, Arizona, I'd heard um, a lot of Californians want to be able on that time zone or you know within an hour of the time zone, quick flight from home. Texas, obviously, was a long-time story, but it's not just Austin. There's a lot of others. And so that huge internal migration to Georgia, to Florida, to Texas, across the entire Sun Belt throughout the pandemic, as uh, uh, Derek Thompson said on our show, if just 10% of the white-collar workforce moves, that is the largest internal migration in the United States since World War II and population redistribution. I think the whole country changed during COVID. I mean, it's like a totally, uh, what, it's like an almost unnuanced point to make at this point. But it's true. It's yeah. just like we had a huge, massive change, and that's disrupting everything. It's reshaped the um, workplace. The it's electoral reshaped mass, I mean. the electoral. It's <laughs> yeah, reshaped. Like, I mean, the the geography and the landscape yeah. of where people are moving to, seeming to seek out these um, smaller cities, mm-hmm. which may be you know overall less expensive, even as the rents are apparently skyrocketing to match some of the larger cities. And then also part of why there's a big jump year over year is because. A lot of places, New York City, I know being one of them, saw a big decrease in rent during the pandemic. And so now things are coming back and you're seeing, you know, rents increasing beyond even where they were before the pandemic as people are having to go back in some ways to work. Um, Certainly people who, you know, work service sector jobs and those sorts of things have to be back in the city or town, back, you know, in the workplace so a lot of the the internal migration, as you point out, has to do with white collar workers yep. who many of whom told their employers, like, I'm not coming back. Yeah, a lot of them were like, screw you. No, we're not coming I'm back not. at all. And um, and if you are going to make me, then I'm going to find another job. And because of the tight labor market, um, uh, many yeah. have been able to do that. So 
just another little indicator, number one, of how everything getting so much more expensive mm-hmm. and e- so that even the wage increases that we have seen are being eaten into by the increased cost of essential goods like food and gas and housing, um, but also just the way that COVID has totally remade and reshaped our landscape in ways that we're only beginning to wrap our heads around. It's completely correct. All right, guys, enjoy the day. We're going to have more for you later. Chris Christie has been on a book tour. We even covered it here on the show. He's been trying to hawk his book called Republican Rescue. He's painting himself, setting himself up to run against Trump, even if Trump does run again. He says, we cannot be clinging to stop the steal. All I completely agree with. But what did I tell you here on the show? If that's your position, then you ain't going to be working in the current Republican Party. And we have this hilarious uh, piece that we can share with all of you. Let's put it up there on the screen. Eric Bowler, uh, look, Eric Bowler is extremely cringe and one of those resistance Democrats, but the guy's got some reporting and we're going to give credit where due. A senior publishing source with access to Industries BookScan tells me Republican Rescue sold just 2,289 copies during its first week in stores, which constitutes a colossal publishing flop. That is a total disaster. On Sunday, Republican Rescue was ranked 15,545th on the Amazon Kindle (laughs) store. So he's only sold a few hundred digital copies, about 2,000 copies of his book. Uh, Look, guys, like, just to give you an example, a best, just to hit the bestseller list, you only have to sell five to 10,000 books. It's not actually that hard. So he's not crocking any bestseller list. This is a total and complete flop. And it just goes to show you the appetite for what Chris Christie is selling is not there whatsoever. I mean, it's kind of insane. And he details, I mean, this guy was everywhere. He did every major show. Making the right. rounds. He was on the This Week he was on The View. Yeah. He was on Fox and Friends. He was on Fox News. He was on Fox Business. He was on The everything. Daily Show. Yeah, he was on HBO twice. He was on CNBC. Um, and so there's a lot going on here because, first of all, it reveals none of those places have any sway with their audience. Right. And we actually saw that when we were doing oh, our we book. we knew it as well. Yeah, which 100%. did a lot better than Chris yeah, Christie's. A lot, a lot. And was, yeah. you know, published by a really right. small imprint. Small imprint. Yes. Ryan Grimm's publishing yes. house published it. And, you know, it, we got it out to press really quickly and all of those things. We didn't have nearly this media lineup. But we did a couple cable news appearances and nothing. Mm. I mean, there are very There's few, no very few hosts and programs where you actually see people watch you on there and then actually go out and buy books. Mm -hmm. And apparently none of these places on this list make the cut whatsoever. Um, So it shows you how little sway they have with their audience, number one. Number two, it shows you that there was, not only was there not Republican interest in Chris Christie there's also not liberal interest in yes. Chris Christie. It's, right. It was a total and complete misreading of the audience to think that they cared what this man had to say at all. Because if you're a liberal like um, Eric, like the guy who wrote this post, right. Eric Bollert, um, what you see, rightfully so, is someone who stood by Trump all the way to the very end, mm-hmm. you know, and was there helping him with debate prep and whatever. So you kind of look at this and go, who is this guy to now come and pretend like he's some hero Liberals weren't buying it either. And then I think especially because Christie, if he was really trying to sell books, 
the way to do it would have been to lean into like an anti-Trump. Oh yeah, that's the only title way and it, have right. some juicy tell-all because some of those books from within the White House, Ugh, whatever, anonymous. have done well. Like in the same week, they point out that Jonathan Carl's new book, Betrayal: The Final Act of the Trump Show, sold twenty-four thousand hard co- cover copies, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if he was really trying to sell books, he should have went with some, like, blatantly Cringe anti-Trump resistance. thing. And the fact of the matter is that um, he may as well have done that because he's nuked himself with Trump and with the Trump base and whatever anyway to prop up a book that ultimately people are not interested in reading because they don't believe Chris Christie yeah. has any real answers to offer about the future of the Republican Party. Unfortunately, that's correct. So there you go. There you go. All right. All right, guys, enjoy your day. We'll have more for you later. Actor Alec Baldwin has just given his uh, first interview, I think, since that horrific tragedy occurred on set with the accidental shooting of a popular cinematographer. Um, he drops a, he says something pretty interesting about how yeah. this ultimately went down, at least according to him. Let's take a listen. She was someone who was loved by everyone who worked with and liked by everyone who worked with and admired. Even now, I find it hard to believe that. It just doesn't seem seem real to me. You haven't said much in public since that tragic accident. Why speak out now? I think the big question, and the one you must have asked yourself a thousand times, how could this have happened? You've described it as a one in a trillion shot, and the gun was in your hand. How do you come to terms with that? It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. What did you think happened? How did a real bullet get on I, that I, set? I have no idea. Someone put a live bullet in a gun, a bullet that wasn't even supposed to be on the property. How do you respond to actors like George Clooney who say that every time they were handed a gun, they checked it themselves? Your emotions are so clearly so right there on the surface. You felt shock. You felt anger. You felt sadness. Do you feel guilt? You said you're not a victim, but is this the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I think back, and I think of what could I have done Alec Baldwin, Unscripted, the newsmaking special event, tomorrow night at 8, 7 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. So that's their promo for it. So the interesting thing there, obviously, is he says he did not pull the trigger. Very emphatically, right? Which, um, I, you know, I grew up with firearms around and learned to shoot when I was young and all that stuff, but I am by no means a weapons expert. So when I initially heard that, I thought there's no way, like... Yeah, I mean, I personally thought he was lying. You have to pull yeah. the trigger, right? right <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that's how that works. But I will say that I asked my dad, who is very into guns. This is his, his hobby and his passion for many years. He also is, like, you know, very interested in the engineering and the mechanics of it, et cetera. And so I said, what people think the, the gun that was used here was a Colt single action. And I said, is this possible at all? Let me read you his text. He says, a single action means it has to be cocked manually by pulling the hammer back. If that has been done, 
then normally a light pull on the trigger could set it off, whether by a trigger finger or something else catching the trigger. However, for some older type revolvers, it is considered dangerous to have a cartridge in the cylinder where the hammer rests because it is possible for a bump against something to cause the gun to fire. I hadn't thought of this before, but under this condition, it is possible that the gun went out off without the trigger being pulled. Most modern revolvers are designed so that can't happen, but there are still many revolvers around where it could, so it is possible Baldwin may be telling the truth. So that's per my dad. Yeah, well, and you know, it's interesting <laughs> because what George Clooney brought up, or sorry, what George Stephanopoulos brought up there about George Clooney is arguably more important to me than all of the semantics. What Clooney, I actually didn't read this interview, so what he points to is that he was like, all of this stuff they're saying is completely crazy. So he was like, I've never heard the term cold gun. He goes, I've never heard of a lot of these uh, so-called safety practices that they're doing there. He said that it's very clear that a lot of the stuff that they were doing on the set was made up and was terrible in terms of standard safety procedure. Even more further, he says, quote, every single time I'm handed a gun on set, every time they hand me a gun, I look at it, I open it, I show it to the person I'm pointing it to, we show it to the crew. Quote, everyone does it and everybody knows. Maybe Alec did that, hopefully he did, although initial police reports suggest that he relied on the cold gun call from his crew. So what we're pointing to there is that Clooney and many other high-level actors had said in the past that they have much more stringent safety procedures on their end and also in terms of how they interact with. The other thing is, Alec Baldwin says, I did not pull the trigger. But as, look, once again, I did not grow up around guns. I've spent a very extremely, I think I've been to a range like four times. Even I know you don't put the finger on the trigger unless you're intent on pulling it and you're pointing it at somebody that it's, you know, in a very, very dire situation. And otherwise, you should have your finger off the trigger in order to avoid even that slight bump that your dad talked about it. So maybe uh, Alec Baldwin, who I assume does not even know that much about guns, maybe he put his finger on the trigger but did not pull the trigger, but even that slight amount of pressure in an older type of gun could have led to the, uh, I don't think they term, they use the term accident, negligent discharge or whatever. Look, all of it is speculation. It's pretty interesting that he's saying that he didn't pull it. But like I said, it seems to be an amalgamation of like terrible safety practice in the yeah. first place. Live gun or live bullet, now live ammo never should have been on the set, period. Inexperienced safety procedure. Uh, other people in Hollywood calling him out hardcore, being like, sorry, man, like you did not follow the stuff well, that, we were, that we've all been doing for years. Uh, we also know that a lot of members of the crew were very unhappy. Yeah, unhappy with, with the safety conditions. Safety conditions and the work conditions. And several had just resigned right. in protest over some of the work conditions um, and the armor who was supposed to be overseeing the safety protocols was very new. This was only her, I think, second movie that she had served in that capacity. Um, and some of the the things that they had said too, like it never should have even been that producer who was handing a gun off. It should have been the armor. So even some things that have come out mm-hmm. have been real red flags to people. Obviously, there were a million mistakes that were made along the way here to get to the point where it's even relevant whether or not Alec Baldwin ultimately pulled the trigger or bumped the trigger or something happened because 
all along the way, it ne there never should have even been live ammo on that set at all. How does that even happen is still a yeah. question that no one knows the answer to, at least not publicly. Still, still waiting to hear on that one. All right, so we'll watch that interview, see if there are any other nuggets for you. Uh, in the meantime, guys, enjoy your day. We'll have more content for you later. Hey guys, thanks so much for watching. That's right. Just as a reminder, you can become a premium subscriber today. Watch the full show completely uncut. Our reactions to each other's monologues. You get to listen to it. You get to ask us questions. All that good stuff. Link is right there in the description or at breakingpoints.com. Best of all, great way to say screw you to the mainstream media. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.